Hi, everyone. Thank you very much for jo uh, joining today. So today we will be discussing the essay Man's Rights. It's from 1963 and it first appeared in the Objectivist newsletter and is part of the collection of essays, The Virtue of Selfishness. And then it was reprinted in Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal. And for me, this is one of the most quotable essays of Rand. It's incredible how every paragraph has something that makes you think that's so great that it should be shared with uh, people that you respect. Uh, so today we're discussing this with Don Watkins and James Valent. If you've been with us for some time, you already know them. Uh, Don has co-authored books like Equally Unfair and The Moral Case for Finance. And he's running the website donswriting.com where you can find some of his courses um, in terms of objective, objective, effective communication and more. And James is a co-author of um, Creating Christ and the Passion of Ayn Rand's Critics. And both are, have been studying objectivism for a while, uh, to say the least. And um, uh, we should be starting. But first uh, of all, if you're on YouTube, feel free to ask a question through Super Chat. We will be uh, tracking that live. Okay, so let's jump to this question. Um, and I was wondering if we could start with um, some of the core things that the count that the essay is counting on, particularly the concept of uh, life in in Rand's ethics. What what is the relevance of the concept of life within Rand's ethics, and also why what is the collection connection between um, action and life? Well, Ayn Rand, her own understanding of life, and I think uh, just the basic understanding of what life is, is the pro as we've discussed in earlier essays, it is the process of self-generated, self-sustaining activity. It's the very process of staying alive. So, for example, birds fly. I digest <laughs> food. All of those actions are actions which are geared for my survival. Life is the kind of thing whose ex very existence faces, you know, the alternative of existence or non-existence based on the kind of actions, the specific course of action it takes or not. So if I were to develop, if, if animals don't need a view of rights because they don't possess free will, human beings do, and their mode of knowledge and their mode of survival is the operation of reason, which operates volitionally. But if I were to have, but if animals could have a code of rights, you would absolutely say, for example, birds should fly. Birds need to fly. Anything that interferes with a bird's flight is destructive of the survival of the bird. Ayn Rand understands rights, in effect, as the same thing. It's a condition for human survival. It is the basic social condition for humans, for the operation of man's basic tool of survival, reason. And so, in effect, any misunderstanding of what rights are would be the equivalent of telling a bird they can't fly. So rights are an objective social condition for human survival, for the operation of man's basic tool of knowledge and survival. It is therefore fact-based uh, uh, matter. It's not a matter of subjective whim, popular vote, nor is it a matter of God's commands or the intrinsic good. Life requires a specific course of action and rights address ourselves 
to the specific course of action that human beings and all those actions that human beings require to survive. So as a human being, you have a right to act on your best judgment. Anything that interferes with that is interfering with your basic tool of survival. Thank you. Um, and there is another concept which I think uh, we will discuss a bit later, um, but maybe it would be interesting to bring first, what is, um, um, con what, what is Rand's concept of objectivity? And what is the difference between, and, and what, what does she contrast it with? Um, and I'm specifically referring to intrinsicism and subjectivism. Um, well, yeah, so I'll say a little bit on that and connect it to this essay. So objectivity in kind of the, a, let's call this the rough sense before you get to kind of her deepest view of objectivity is just the idea that we need a method of decision-making. We need a method of judgment. So in cognition, it's that, you don't just open your eyes and know everything that's true. You have to undergo a certain process, but it's a certain process. It's not whatever you feel like is true or something like that. And she thinks it's the same thing when it comes to judging good and bad or right and wrong. It's that we need a certain, we need to undergo a certain process in order to reach knowledge in order to make evaluations. And in in epistemology, uh, or let me say, what that mostly consists of is that you need a standard. So in epistemology, it's that, well, we need a standard of proof, and, that, and then we need to judge a proposition by, does the evidence meet the standard of proof or doesn't it meet it? In, in ethics, we need a standard of value, and then we need to assess things. Um, is this good for life, by, or is this good according to our standard of value, or is this bad? And in politics, what Ayn Rand is arguing is that the standard of value for organizing a society is going to be individual rights, that that's going to be our standard for evaluating this is the kind of thing that government should do, this is the kind of thing that government shouldn't do. But for Rand, the standard itself needs to be grounded that is, we can't just pick whatever standard we want in order to be objective. To be objective is to pick a rational standard and then apply that in terms of our evaluations. And it'll come through as we talk about it, like what is her argument that rights is the correct standard for social organization? Um, but there, the I'm trying to decide how much we want to go into this because it the, it's one of the most crucial and deep and difficult concepts in objectivism to get um, her concept of objectivity. But I'll just say this much. The standard has to reflect both an element of reality and an element contributed by human consciousness. So in, in ethics, I think this is the easiest thing to see. It's that there's certain requirements of human survival that Jim was talking about. That's the element that comes from reality. Values simply are that which keeps an organism alive. That's which required that which an end, uh, an organism pursues for its self-preservation. That's what allows us to discriminate something as a value, right? Versus a rock rolling down the hill. Well, it's it's moving, it's acting in a certain sense, but it's not pursuing values. You couldn't look at rocks and say, okay, good, bad. 
um, values just are that which organisms pursue in order to sustain their ability to go on pursuing things. Um, but that's not enough to get you to objectivity. What you need is an element from human consciousness and in ethics, that's the choice to live. So for a human being, it's that if I choose to live now, reality imposes certain requirements to achieve that goal. And so, in, and so that's what allows you to say, all right, my standard of value is objective and therefore I'm objective whenever I evaluate things according to that standard of value. And so what you have in politics is that there's certain requirements for human beings to thrive in society. And then the choices, the people who want to live are going to or organize the society according to that principle. They're going to implement it in their laws and in their institutions. Yeah, that's really what it comes down to. And you can see the contrasting views really in the different approaches to rights that Ayn Rand is talking about. Without Ayn Rand's trichotomy there, or triple understanding of the different approaches to how one understands concepts, you really can't grasp her idea of rights. Her, her theory of concepts really is a precondition for getting this. If you have an intrinsicist view of concepts, for example, you're going to have an intrinsicist view of what rights are. If they are built in in some Kantian way, or if they're the commands of God in some way, if you have an intrinsicist approach to concepts, you will tend to have an intrinsicist approach to values. Same is true with subjectivism. If you have a subjectivist approach to concepts, it will be a subjectivist approach to values, and therefore a subjectivist understanding. If you have any understanding of rights at all, it'll be a purely subjectivist one. It'll be a matter of vote, popular opinion poll, that sort of thing. It's just subjective and relative. Neither are objective, neither are fact-based, neither really get to what rights are really all about. And if you think about it, an intrinsicist approach, say God's commands, is no more objective than the subjectivist approach. God could command anything. I mean, look in Genesis, he tells Abraham to go kill his son. Child murder is okay if God says so. So if God says so, <clears throat> it's really no more or less arbitrary than a subjectivist approach. The only alternative to really understand what rights are and their actual function in reality and why humans actually thrive in a society that respects rights versus the societies that don't. Uh, you really have to focus on the actual facts in the matter and both an intrinsicist and a subjectivist approach obscure the facts uh, that provide the basis for rights. Thank you. Um, so I think we could, jump in the, uh, then into the first part of the essay, which I think the, the first part deals with um, two, two parts, um, the relationship between morality and rights, and also a comparison of um, the American system, uh, the, the American system's achievements against history. And I think one of the interesting things on the essay is that uh, she she's coming from a perspective that, that m uh, m most of her readers will have a positive opinion on, on what America stands for. Um, and to start to start from the beginning, uh, I was wondering if I could make make you a question on one of the first paragraph. Um, one of the first sentences says that if one wishes to advocate for a free, free society, one must realize 
that the foundation is a principle of individual rights. And if one wishes to uphold individual rights, one must realize that capitalism is the only system that can uphold and protect them. So my question was, if this is a one-to-one -one relationship, if, um, and maybe that will gear us into what we'll be discussing over the, the course of the, of the essay. I think it's helpful to get who she's writing to with this, right? So she's writing, I think, to people who are, see themselves as pro-freedom, see themselves as um, pro-capitalism, though they may fall into one category, but not the other. So it's, there's, if, you, if your individual rights is going to be a moral principle that's going to organize society. And so she's saying, if you care about freedom, then individual rights is what freedom means. And that entails capitalism, which you might not like. So, right, like the socialists who think, yeah, I'm, I'm a believer in rights. And there were you, there are socialists who would even think of themselves as individualists. Um, she's saying like, no, capitalism is what happens when you protect human freedom. And then she's saying to the pro-capitalist side that capitalism, you can't even understand it, let alone value it apart from protecting individual rights. So if you think about the kind of utilitarian defenders of capitalism or like the conservatives who would talk all about, you know, tradition and we, you know, man's depravity and so on, it's no, that is completely hopeless in terms of creating capitalism. It's that capitalism is the system based on individual rights. And if you protect individual rights, what you get is capitalism. And so the her her formulation there is really aimed at marrying these concepts and um but it's also helpful to get that if for people who don't consider themselves interested in this is not written for like haters of freedom i'm going to persuade you of that it's that if you have some sense that freedom is a value and you want to understand what it is and how it's possible that's what I'm going to clarify for you by clarifying the concept of man's rights. Yeah. You know, in Ayn Rand's day in the 1960s, the left tended to say we are in favor of civil liberties um, as opposed to property rights and economic liberties. And that distinction Ayn Rand felt was anathema, that freedom of the mind and freedom uh, to, to act trade, produce, are really fundamentally the same thing. And they're both justified on the same basis, the same factual basis. For Ayn Rand, rights are a unity. You can't divide it up into economic rights over here, civil rights over here. And back in her day, it's hard to imagine now because it sort of seems like the left has forgotten any defense of free speech, which they at least mouthed uh, decades ago, uh, they're pretty much in favor of censorship. And if you look at the right today, to, they, to them, they've adopted leftist ideas like corporate censorship in social media. So it's a little more confused today. It's in fact what Ayn Rand sort of predicted. When you have a bad concept of rights, the entire concept is going to break down even the partial understandings that right and left had back when she wrote this essay. Well, some were in favor of economic rights, some were in favor of civil rights. The conservatives weren't so worried about uh, free speech. The liberals weren't concerned at all about economic liberties or property rights. I'm saying that's a wrong distinction 
rights are in fact a unity, your freedom of action in all respects, my freedom to communicate and my freedom to trade and produce are both based on the fact that reason is my basic tool of knowledge, reason is my basic tool of survival, and its basic social condition is freedom from coercion from other people. If we understand that, then there's no freedom of speech. For example, Ayn Rand would say very uh, famously that there should be a separation of state and economics for the same basic reason that there should be a separation of church and state, for the same basic reason. For Ayn Rand, rights are a single unity based on the actual needs of human life. Thank you. Um, so I think the, the question that one could start with is basically uh, how do rights uh, function as a moral concept or, or maybe more broadly, what is the role of morality in politics or social relationships if we don't want to call it politics? Well, yeah, I think so. Ayn Rand is concerned with how people should live. Like what, and I mean, if you, we've talked about her fiction and I mean, her goal was to present an ideal management, the moral ideal. And so she's deeply concerned with morality and that fundamentally, and, and one of her most striking points that she'll make is that you would need morality most in a desert island, which most people think like, no, morality is primarily social. And she thinks, no, it's primarily about the individual, but it is social. That is it. It's supposed to guide your life and in interacting with human beings. And not just like scattered interactions on a desert island where you run into Friday one day and kind of like, you know, hang out and play chess, but ongoing deep interactions of a society. And she thinks society can be a tremendous value to people, but it can also be a tremendous threat. And how do you even have an organized society rather than chaos? You need certain, what you want is you want to have a moral principles governing social relationships the same way that they should govern an individual's behavior. But the question is like, how does that even work, right? Because it used to be the idea, if you think about um, social organization is in uh, the way she'll put it sometimes in this essay is the um, subordinating might to right. If you think about it from those terms, the even kind of a primitive government that's pretty oppressive is a step in a certain direction, right? It's we've started now to not just having roving gangs of people slaughtering each other. We have some semblance of rules, some semblance of no, you can't just do whatever you want to me. I, I'm entitled to certain kinds of treatment, at least from my neighbors, if not from the government. And so there's this kind of groping to subordinate might to right, to make morality in charge rather than anybody's individual discretion of how to treat each other. And so what she's, what, what then you're, but um, by the enlightenment, really, you're getting now, okay, we face a certain kind of problem in there, which is we want to subordinate might to right. But there's a recognition that you can't actually make people do what's right, because that seemed to be the answer, right? If you're subordinating might to right, it'd be like, hey, Jim, this is the right thing to do, and you better do it or you're going to jail. But in the Enlightenment, um, thinkers like Locke, if you read his essay concerning uh, toleration or letter concerning toleration, I'm blanking on the exact title. Um, there's a real recognition that like 
what's true and what's good can't be forced on somebody, that this is a product of reason and that people are sovereign over the use of their own mind. So it's not like you don't want to force the good in them. It's that you can't. The good is that which has to come from the individual exercising his faculties. And it's this that then leads to the formulation of the concept of individual rights, which does something extraordinary. It puts morality in charge. It says, like, we're protecting the right from might. We're subordinating might to right. Not by forcing the good in people, but by but by protecting their ability to do what's good. So it's that I can do what's moral. Nobody can stop me. Nobody can impose anything on me. Um, and then it's up to me whether or not I will do the good. And that's what, to extend morality into the social or into the sphere of social organization means to protect the individual's ability to engage in a moral way of life. Can't guarantee it because you can't force the good on somebody. That's an impossibility. But it gives you what the individual actually needs, which is the freedom in order to live a moral life as he lives and interacts with the rest of the members of society. Right. If morality is all about human survival, if morality really does define the, the basic conditions that all humans uh, need in order to survive, I need to be rational, I need to be independent, that those things really are important principles connected to my survival. Morality, therefore, the basic idea of rights is just an extension of that into politics, into the social realm. It's the bridge, in effect, between morality, which is all about human survival, and the social conditions for human survival. It's the application, basically, of the same kind of principle. So it forms the bridge from morality to politics in Ayn Rand's understanding of things. So it's all that, unless you have Ayn Rand's objective understanding of ethics, you're not going to have an objective understanding of what rights are. Once more, we see the hierarchical relationship of uh, these things. Could you talk a little bit more on how political systems have evolved, um, usually de facto, and based on, on moral uh, codes? So, for instance... Oh, yeah. they notice they always do start with moral codes, even in the most primitive Look, the pharaohs of Egypt had a uh, totally mystical, <laughs> but an elaborate metaphysical basis for an elaborate moral code that justified the pharaoh's absolute dictatorship of the Nile River Valley. And you'll, you'll, you'll find the divine right of kings. Think of the word there, right of kings. Louis XIV has an absolute right to make whatever laws he, he wants. He is the voice of God. He is the appointed agent of God on earth. And therefore, he, Louis XIV, has this right to tell you how to live. So uh, again, a bad understanding of rights can turn them into the exact opposite, uh, tools of tyranny, tools of tyranny if they're misunderstood. So there can be all kinds of definitions. If you go to a philosophical dictionary, the Stanford Dictionary of Philosophy, and you look up rights, you'll get all kinds of definitions of what rights are that are absolute violations of rights and are based on some kind of intrinsicist or subjectivist approach to what rights are. Privileges, immunities of some kind because you belong to some category, some class. <clears throat> so politics, since time began, has always grounded itself in some view of morality. 
that's just the way it goes for human beings. They ground, that's the way we think. We're conceptual beings. We're going to ground our moral view of what is the correct politics in a deeper view of ethics. Yeah, and, and the way this plays out, Jim used the word justify, and that's the key issue. It's not that it's rare that people sit down and say, all right, here's our view of morality and it's kind of distinct from politics. And then they say, okay, how do we apply this to politics? That's, that's an unusual thing that, I mean, basically it's what philosophers do. But what always happens is that people justify their institutions and policies. They, they say, this is why this is right. This is why this is good. And those justifications in effect tell us what they're taking is morally right and morally given. And they might not even have it all conceptualized very clearly, like, oh, there's a consistent standard in here or something. But what it amounts to is, uh, but what their justifications amount to is an implicit ethics, an implicit view of this is right and this is wrong. And therefore, we can treat this, uh, this justification as legitimate. And so that's, it, it's in that way that there's an implicit and sometimes explicit ethics underlying any political uh, system or any political policy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Look at the way that both left and right in the United States are sort of vying for the moral high ground of Christian ethics. You conservatives, you claim to be Christians, but we're the ones who take care of the poor, like the Bible says, completely disarming the conservatives. He, the conservative has no objective view of rights. To him, it is all a question of what the will of God is or what's in, you know, the intrinsic con to the abstract requirements of ethics or something. If that's what it boils down to for you, then you really have no answer. <laughs> They're completely disarmed. <clears throat> the right is completely disarmed when the left says that because they don't have an understanding of rights as a sanction of an individual's freedom of action. When you understand that a right is basically a sanction of a, of your freedom to act in a social context, that basic understanding clears away all this rubble of, of right versus left because they're approaching it from completely, uh, if they have rights at all, from a completely fact factless, non-objective understanding of what's up, what rights are. Either boils down to emotions or subjectivity or polls or God's will, and in effect, they're all equally arbitrary. None of them get at the actual function, basis, and importance of rights in human survival. Yes, I think we will be discussing a bit more that last point. Um, but I think another interesting thing that, that I wanted to ask you about is what is this relationship of um, so, of seeing societies as amoral, um, as Rand call, calls them, as uh, usually being above um, above individuals and mandating um, whatever the individuals needed for uh, whatever the society needed to to prevail. What is this relationship, and uh, and what what is it grounded upon? Yeah, and basically that's it. I, I was having a, a small comment on that, but maybe I'll phrase it as, as a question, as a follow-up. If society is the absolute, if society, capital S, is what we're doing this for, and, and if every individual's got to subordinate their interest to the interest of society, <clears throat> then you have a, 
that what you've done is you've elevated society to a layer where it can't really be questioned. It is the standard of value, what society needs. It is above morality. It is the standard of morality. In that sense, what you've done, and you, in effect, you're saying society is above morality and it's amoral in that way. But in effect, the reality is going to be immoral. It's going to be tremendous evil. <laughs> it's going to shut down the human, each human being's basic tool of survival, his ability to act morally. You know, um, the whole idea of rights, as, as uh, Don was saying, it's, it has to be, a, morality cannot be forced as such. Morality is the chosen. In effect, a violation of your freedom is saying you can't act morally. We've taken away your capacity to act either immorally or uh, uh, morally, virtuously. Welfare is not charity. It's not benevolence. Benevolence is when an individual chooses to uh, help someone. That's charity and benevolence. To, to say that society's form of charity and benevolence is benevolent is to ignore the fact of human volition. Morality is only the chosen. You take away my choice. I cannot be moral. I am now, a, my capacity to be good or bad has simply been taken away from me. I'm now made an amoral cog in this collectivist machine. Thank you. And the follow-up I was thinking about is Rand, um, in that same paragraph, states something, states that, um, the usually one of the justifications was that the good is that which is the good of for society and in parenthesis she says of the tribe or the race or the nation and the rulers ethics are its voice on earth and one of the things that reminded me is one of the in, in the introduction to the virtue of selfishness she talks about altruism as having a very similar justification in the sense of that the good is that which is good for society. Do you think that's a resemblance, like a direct resemblance to that? Well, what, what, it, what it really is, is, and it's right that you brought up the introduction of virtue of selfishness, because there she talks about how altruism is not a full ethics. It's not an actual code of values, virtues, what it does is it substitutes beneficiary for the content of ethics. So it's, if you're being selfish, that's wrong. If, if uh, you're being selfless, if you're serving and sacrificing for others, then anything goes. And so you could imagine that there is such a thing as a, um, you know, collectivist view of government that was not amoral like it's we have these inherited traditions or like god is beaming down orders and imagine like god really is beaming down orders so it's not just you know who whatever the priest happens to say um then it's that okay we have a authoritarian collectivist society and it's not amoral it's just ruled by you know these these and now it's complicated because i mean essentially god would be the amoral force there but my point is this my point is that in actual functioning, what altruism does, because it just upholds a beneficiary, then it's the whoever is the object of sacrifice, whoever is in effect the proper beneficiary of moral action, their desires, their whims 
are they they rule. So when you're supposed to sacrifice, it's not that you're supposed to think very scientifically about what's objectively beneficial, like what will objectively benefit Jim. No, objective benefit, like that requires an egoistic code of ethics in order to answer. It's that, you know, Jim, whatever he wants, as long as he can't earn it and Don can, then Don has to uh, try to fulfill his desires, no matter how irrational. No offense, Jim. I know you wouldn't actually do that. Um, <laughs> and so now if you think about it from the perspective of society, it's the same thing. It's that the, the good of a society has been replaced from principles that one would actually try to use and think about apply to whatever does society and its spokesman uh, desire. And you can think about the parallel. I mean, this came up last week when we talked about tribalism. The last couple of weeks we were talking about tribalism. Said that the selfishness without a self, the, the lone wolf, is the person who says, my whims rule. And that what tribalism is, is no, that's, that's selfish, that's bad our whims rule. And then the question is just what, what is the relevant tribe? And so um, the, the, the kind of perspective that you get in social organization, apart from the concept of individual rights is well, what's the relevant tribe? Well, it's my nation for the you know, Nazis. It was the, the Aryan race. Um, or if you even think about ones where it seems like, well, it's not nationalistic, but it doesn't seem based on rights. What it often is, is, well, we're just treating all of humanity as the kind of ruling group and it's whatever all of humanity wants. So yeah, maybe America has to bear sacrifices and then, and doesn't get to assert its own needs, but like, you know, every two bit country around the world that uh, can't feed its people they have the right to demand everything of us and like collect our sacrifices. So I think it, it comes ultimately from the idea of treating beneficiary as the central and primary issue in ethics, that that's in effect the same dynamic that's playing out in making these societies immoral society or amoral societies. Um, and we, I mean, we get it in um, Galt's speech where it's that with the whole perspective of morality of sacrifices that, um, if you've earned something, if you've, if you've achieved something, then you have no right to claim anything. But if you haven't, then anything goes. And every other code of ethics then is basically a form of, uh, because they're sacrificial, is a form of saying anything, for you, the individual, nothing goes unless we say so. But for us, anything goes. Right. And how many forms do we hear it in? How many forms do we hear that nonsense? <laughs> you didn't build that. Uh, you know, the, we, you're, you're being selfish and greedy in various forms. Yeah. But if we approach rights that way, we are necessarily going to squash the individual. Altruism in its lack of concern for the individual. If sacrifice really is the good, then why shouldn't society impose sacrifice? It, it's that simple. If, if indeed the, the most moral thing I can do is surrender myself to what? Some, some cause greater than myself? Boy, we hear that all the time. I have to surrender myself to some cause greater than myself if I have any meaning or purpose to my life. If that's your view of morality, then your view of politics is going to be sacrifice. Let's enforce those sacrifices. Live for the poor. Live for the needy. Live for the those who, instead of those... It, Instead of the conditions that human life requires, the individual life requires, the individual is now 
subordinated to what the society wants. It, and in fact, it, historically, it goes the other way about, doesn't it? Ayn Rand even understood this. The morality of altruism was really designed to justify political manipulation and slavery. Sacrifice has no moral justification. There is, as she says in The Virtue of Salvage, no earthly reason why altruism, why some, the good of your neighbor is good, but your, your good isn't. Why a piece of cake in your neighbor's stomach is a value, but not in yours. Well, there is no earthly reason. It's always based in some form of mysticism, altruism is. So where does it come from? It comes from the real need to manipulate people here on earth, power lust. So causally, it works the other way around. The, the politics is what really informed the development of altruism as a moral doctrine. But now that we have the more fundam philosophically fundamental doctrine of altruism, it will now serve as the basic justification for all these other forms of collectivism. And they really are all the justifications for all of them. Communism from each according to his ability, uh, fascism, service for the fatherland and the Aryan race, whatever the collective is, right? Collectivism emanates naturally from altruism once you accept it. But historically speaking, altruism was a giant justification for power lust here on earth. Um, so being said that, having talked about the, let's call it negative case, Rand then shifts to her positive, positive case. And I warn you, this one is very quotable. She says that, uh, the most profoundly revolutionary achievement of the United States of America was a subordination of society to moral law. The principle of man's individual rights represented the extension of morality into the social system as a limitation on the power of the states as man's pro protection against the brute force of the collective as a subordination of might, of might to right. The U United States was the first moral society in history. So being said that, what is what what is the whole this whole idea of subordinating society to moral law? I mean, it's already implied in, in the quote that I said, but could you expand a little bit more on that? Well, I mean, if I feel I like we understand. Oh, John, go ahead. Go, no, go ahead. I mean, I, my, I I think we mostly kind of commented on it. But here's just another way to sort of restate the point. Um, so if we think about, like, it, I, I find it helpful, and this is a point that uh, I learned from Ankar Gatte that, or perspective that yeah, he really drew my attention to, um, which is if you actually look at how Enlightenment thinkers were formulating the principle of individual rights, it's they had a certain conception of how you should live and what life required. And so if you think about Locke, he's he's talking about, you know, human beings, the individual on a quest for self-preservation. And then what does that actually consist of in practice? Well, he will have to talk about the rational and industrious, right? So it's you're using your mind to think and you're using your effort to create material values that you need to survive in order then to in, sustain and enjoy your life. And that that is the essence of um, what a moral life consists of. It's the rational, industrious person on a quest for life and happiness. And so if you're thinking about subordinating might to right, you're thinking about 
well, what can stop a person from doing that? And Lockwall talk about like the state of war, right? It's, um, you know, pre-government, it's okay. Well, I can go, I can get along doing that just fine. But if, you know, Bill comes along and starts like beating me up and taking my vegetables, like I can't do that. I can't be rational industrious or I'm hobbled in my ability to engage in that process of self-sustaining action to use Rand's terminology for it. And so if you think then about what government's doing, is it's looking at you and saying, hey, no, that the, what you're doing is right. The ra Being rational and industrious, that's what you should be doing. And so we're going to protect it. And if you think then about what our actual rights are, as Ayn Rand is going to formulate, well, it's fundamentally a right to life. It's about saying that that overall process of self-preservation is good and nobody can interfere with it. Well, how do you engage in it? Well, by being rational, in other words, using your mind. And that is the whole perspective of liberty is that you're, you're able to use your mind and follow the judgments of your mind without interference from others. And then industrious, it's that you can be productive, which includes the fact of you can go out there and create material values and then use them for the benefit of your life. So it's the right to property. And then it's, what is this all for? It's for your happiness, for your enjoyment of life, and therefore you have a right to pursue happiness. So it's that there's a vision of what the moral life looks like and subordinating might to right or society to moral law. What it's saying is that that it cannot be interfered with by other people, that 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 way of living that is the actual moral life, the kind of life that keeps one alive, anybody who interferes with it is wrong, no matter their numbers, no matter, you know, whether they're the president or whether they're just, you know, the, the guy down the street. And so that's what we're out to protect. Right. Human creativity requires, and that's our basic tool of survival is reason. We um, will with our minds create the very values that we need to survive creative thought is a necessary element of human survival if creative creative thought requires the ability to disagree to do things differently to do act on my individual own judgment since thinking is only a capacity a capacity possessed by an individual individual freedom is the essence of the operation of the basic tool of survival. Therefore, if anyone tries to impose their view of the good life or what's right on me, if they're going beyond merely banning coercion, banning force, making sure that humans are human interaction is voluntary, if it goes anything beyond that, then it's necessarily impeding my tool of survival. Anything beyond the protection of freedom actually shuts down creative thought doesn't permit it to come into being. To that extent is inconsistent with the operation of humanity's basic tool of survival. As we said even earlier, freedom permits volition's operation in effect. Morality cannot be forced, morality is the chosen. Freedom itself is the condition for morality to operate. And we mean that in a concrete sense, taking all of the specific actions that my life requires. I've got to think, I've got to produce, I've got to voluntarily trade with others. All those things that my life requires, my physical existence requires, must be part of that right within my freedom of creative thought. Only, only coercion can really interfere with that. Thank you. So, sure. Uh, 
I was hoping to jump into Rand's conception of rights, but first we have a super chat from Marvin who asks, uh, has the US culture supported individual rights before the founding fathers or was it a minority enough to implement a system and so that the culture might follow? Well, I, I think it's both. That is, there was the leading thinkers and you know scientists and um, uh, statesmen of the age who were convinced that in, that individual rights were crucial principle of political thinking, and that permeated out into the culture before even the American Revolution. So it's that what happens is not like some minority, like you couldn't have taken the founding fathers, transplanted them to North Korea, and then, you know, said, all right, now we've got, you know, we have a minority who believes in individual rights. Rather, it's that they were that they were the leaders and shapers of the culture, made individual rights profoundly widespread and popular, though not fully understood. And that's what enabled them to create the United States. Exactly right. Exactly right. Understand that even at the beginning of the United States, they didn't have a really clear conceptual understanding of what they were doing. They had some basics right. They had some really important basics right about the nature of freedom. It's the pursuit of happiness, not a guaranteed happiness. It's the scope of, of freedom of action. But even they didn't really understand that all the way down. Many of America's founding fathers did own and defend the institution of slavery. Without a consistent and proper understanding, even the founding fathers were on shaky ground. Um, the whole idea that some had that still connected it with God. It's not, of course, the Enlightenment view and the Declaration's view of God is not the modern conservatives view of God either. It's nature's God, and it was human nature as they understood it that implied rights. Conservatives use that language and they focus just on God, forget, forget nature's God and human nature. But that's in effect what it boils down to if you have some mystical intrinsicist view versus the subjectivist view. Thank you. Um, sure. So Ryan furthers down and says that man's life is his by right and that society has no rights and that government's role is to uh, protect those rights. And then she pulls her definition of um, what rights are, which um, it's a bit striking for me. Uh, basically, her definition is uh, a right is a moral principle defining and sanctioning a man's freedom of action in a social context. And the thing that is a bit striking for me, uh, it's the, the word of defining. What does defining mean? And maybe, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a bit truly confused in that, but is this the, the, the link of Rand stating that uh, her concept of objectivity into rights? Or Yeah, I mean, I think that's one way to think about it. So it's that we've been talking about the way in which rights are um, kind of supplanting intrinsicist and subjectivist approaches to politics. But there's also intrinsicist approach to rights and indeed subjectivist approaches to rights. And if you and I think one of the the 
well, I'll, I want to be careful with attributing it to the founders, but let's say people who are influenced by the founding will, I think, often fall into an intrinsicist view of rights. We have these natural rights, they're kind of implanted in us. And so we kind of have to just like squint our eyes really tight to see, wait, do I have a right to intellectual property? And if so, like, how long should I have a patent for? And it's kind of looking at reality and waiting for it to tell us the answers. And that from the objectivist perspective, it's that no, rights are moral principles and moral principles have to be defined and they're based on facts, but there's also, uh, but reality doesn't tell you, for instance, where to draw the line. So it's that if you understand the purpose of intellectual property rights, it's that, um, yeah, we, we definitely have intellectual property rights. And in the, in the case of patents, I don't want to go too much into this because it's, she has a whole article and we should probably talk about that someday. But the point is you need some kind of time limitation on them in order to fulfill their role in protecting value creation and not undermining their, the role in value creation. But then reality doesn't tell us it should be seven years or 10 years or 12 years. So there's a kind of judgment involved. And so the, the larger point here is that, um, rights have to be defined and they have to be defined in an ongoing way. That is, if you have a new phenomenon like the internet, how in the world do, do rights apply to the internet? Um, or, I mean, imagine that there was a new creature that wasn't, you know, is advanced intelligence, but it wasn't conceptual. How are we going to interact with them? Like you need to define that you need to, there's an ongoing, I mean, that's kind of a far flung, but it happens all the time. Any new technology, uh, just a new evolving um, facets of human beings. Like um, anytime a disease comes up, right? Like with this, there can be, um, you have kind of general principles, but this particular disease, if it spreads in a certain way with a certain rapidity and so on, um, do we need specific laws to govern that? Like there's all of kinds of questions about what, what government should be doing that and about what our sphere of freedom is that it's not one and done our our most abstract fundamental rights a philosopher can set down in a timeless way right life liberty property the pursuit of happiness okay that's great but there's much more specificity that one needs in actual to actually govern to implement rights into law and it's there that you need an active process of the government of thinking, well, how do we do this? And reality doesn't give you the answer and you can't deduce it from philosophy. You need a lot of specific knowledge. So for instance, um, you know, uh, when I was in college and talking to libertarians and objective, like we would get, and, I'm, and Jim, I know you've had these as well, right? You know, 12 hour discussions about like, oh no, like what should uh, this law be or that law be or something like that. And then it, as you get older, you realize we had no clue what we're talking about. Not because we didn't, <laughs> not because we didn't know philosophy, but because we didn't know the field. We didn't know the, the legal system and everything. And you need that material in Boy. order to yeah. create the laws. And it's very notable if you look at the founders. So in James Madison's preparing for the constitutional convention, he wasn't studying philosophy he was studying the he was studying history he was studying every legal system all the institutions that had been created in these countries and how they did and why they failed every single republic 
And it was that raw material then that allowed him to come up, not just with the, ab not just the abstract principle of individual rights, but how do we create an institution that can actually protect rights? Right. These were the founding fathers were English lawyers, basically trained in English common law. And one of the things about English history that uh, I think deserves special notice is that its legal system was not developed top down in effect, but developed ground up through cases, specific case law developed by judges in from specific cases. This guy borrowed my cow under certain conditions. He gave it back to me and it wasn't in the same condition. What are the situations when it's a cow like this? And a, so it's in, in effect, the history of common law is the history of an inductive process of case by case analysis. Well, in this situation, this guy really has the right because the promise was made to him. He put in most of the work. This was the rational expectation dot, dot, dot. What Don just said there is of enormous importance. A lot of the best principles in Anglo-American common law were simply developed from the ground up, from experience in commercial cases, property cases, uh, family law cases. It was, in, in effect, a case-by-case -case development of for small principles, then wider principles, and then wider principles, so that we can get b basic legal maxims out of common law. And that is exactly what informed, incidentally, people like John Locke all the way to James Madison, as Don points out, they studied legal systems and they did understand rights in terms of the, say the philosophic approach that Locke took about the, say the conditions of man in a state of nature, right? They combined that with the inductive rules that had been, inductive principles that had been developed through common law and they saw the matchup ah, this, this law made sense for this reason. <clears throat> and that process is an all, will always be an ongoing one. There will always be new situations, new technologies, new, new contexts to consider. And the basic principles, though, are what's going to guide us there. But it is an ongoing process of applying those principles to new situations as well. And... What is the grounding that rent takes to justify these rights? Um, what I'm thinking about is, um, I mean, I'm, I'm quoting for my memories of uh, university, but uh, I think that some philosophers try to ground the idea of rights in something like that they call the state of nature, something like, uh, like a hypothesis of how would people be and behave if there was no government, or I think uh, a more nuanced version of this are how would you try to choose government or, or what kind of rights would you choose if um, you were about to be born, but you didn't know how, how you are. Um, but what is Rand's view on how to think about rights and, uh, and is this idea of state of nature in any in any way consistent in any part with Ayn Rand? Ayn Rand's views. Well, I've given the justification, right? It's that she has a certain view of what's morally good, and then she seeks to protect it. And that that in that sense, she's following what the Enlightenment thinkers were doing, though um, 
they're mixed, right? Like I gave kind of the most crystallized best uh, stuff in Locke, but he also had, hey, we're owned by God, so don't mess with God's property. So it was it was a mixed bag. But then, um, but I don't think it's right exactly that what the Enlightenment thinkers who pioneered state of nature was doing, or rather, let me put it positively. Um, there's ways in which the state of nature is trying to get at something right. So it's that we will, part of what it's trying to do is strip away um, government and order to think about social organization. And part of what that does is that it's reflecting that we have pre-existing moral standards that we should be carrying over into thinking about politics. So it's not the, you know, well, hey, whatever the king says goes, it's that, no, we can judge social systems, we can judge social policies by moral principles that are independent and pre-existing of society. Um, so there's that. There's also that you're trying to think about the survival requirements of human beings. So if you're trying to think about what is the value of social organization, what is the value of society, one way that you get at it is strip away society and think like, well, how would it start? Um, how, what would society be like without the government? And then what is the benefits and hazards of once you get one? So as a thought experiment, there's some value to it, though Rand herself doesn't use it. What she uses to get at the same thing, as I've mentioned earlier, is that kind of alone on a desert island perspective, and then start thinking about society. And one reason why I think she doesn't use it is that there's certain because it's a thought experiment, because it's it's not looking at actual societies before there's a government, it's very easy to import a bunch of knowledge or a bunch of assumptions into it that you don't know you're making that are going to shape everything. So, for instance, um, Robert Nozick very famously from a, uh, takes a state of nature approach in um, Anarchy State and Utopia to defending uh, freedom. And from Rand's perspective, like it goes, she didn't comment on Nozick in particular, but if you contrast them, um, he goes really wrong in certain ways. And in part, it's that his thought experiment starts with a whole bunch of people who have never heard of government or have any principles of, uh, or, you know, they haven't reflected on social organization yet. And they just like happen to create uh, free market capitalism based on individual rights and you know government securing that and that is like so so not what happens or could possibly <laughs> happen and part of what it is is it reflects an intrinsicist view of rights that oh we just rights pop into our head and we just know that that's morally right as opposed to rand's view that no it's part of reflecting on different societies and forms of social organization and how um, what kind of governments people flourish under and what kinds they don't so it's not like a, um, depending on how a thinker use, uses it, it can have better or worse uses, but it's, it's dangerous and we don't actually need it. But historically, like, look, it was, it was really powerful. I mean, Hobbes, for all of his problems, part of what he does by putting the, this idea of state of nature forward is he makes political thinking more individualist. Why would an individual join society? Like he doesn't start with society and say, like, how should it rule us? But why would an individual, what would the benefit to the individual be of society? And that and and that really moved us in a better direction, but it's it's kind of a thought experiment better left to the side. Whereas if what you're really trying to get at 
today, like, um, to, and this is relevant to Nozick, if what you're really trying to get is what are the benefits and hazards of a government, it's way better to look at, well, where, um, to look at real governments in their absence. And Locke did this too. Like he would, he thought a lot about um, North America, which at the time did not really have governments in any kind of established sense. They weren't anarchies, but it was a new colony, right? Like you didn't have a fully fleshed out social organization there. Um, and, and certainly amongst the tribes, which they had discovered and were learning a bunch of knowledge about. Uh, like that's what he kind of, one of the things he was looking to, to reflect on um, the the actual practice versus a kind of thought experiment state of nature approach. Yeah, I think there's a value in effect, so long as we understand that it is just a thought experiment to Robinson Crusoe on the island, and then you add Friday, and then they, as Don says, it's not simply adding Friday an occasional interaction, it's a social organization of their interaction, a systematic approach to it. And uh, so there's a sort of a thought experiment that we can do, uh, but it's really just a thought experiment. Uh, you know, a lot of it will depend on your view of human nature. You know, you could say state of nature, but what it but what it boils down to is your view of human nature. If you think humans are basically rotten and corrupt and need a powerful state to control them and to control their appetites and their evil ways, then you're going to be in favor of Leviathan state because you have a very low view of human nature. If you have a more benevolent view of human nature, perhaps you may have a Pollyanna view of human nature. We don't need government at all. People just work it out, they'll be peaceful and prosperous, and we, we really don't need government at all. Your view of human nature will be the fundamental conditioner of this. But as Don points out, in practical reality, it's a lot more complex than uh, Robinson Crusoe and Friday. Uh, and that's why we need an, uh, an entire code of law. In fact, a specific branch of philosophy, uh, political philosophy, philosophy of law that works out in detail the implications of this. Thank you. So continuing the um, the flow of the of the essay, I was wondering if you could comment a bit on, we, we already talked about the idea of life as a fundamental right, but I think there is also, uh, it would be also interesting to discuss the other three uh, core rights, um, the out of um, the the right to their the right to liberty, uh, property, and the pursuit of happiness, and maybe what is the relationship to the objectivist ethics and probably the whole idea of uh, thinking, acting to think, and enjoying the um, activity of survival. Well, I think the most obvious way to see it is, you know, I mentioned this idea of uh, Locke stressing rational industrious. Um, I mean, Ayn Rand, the, if you look at, uh, so in Galt's speech, she has, you know, seven virtues that she outlines, but in, um, in the objectivist ethics, she really focuses or distinguishes kind of uh, three primary virtues, not primary, but um, she conceptualizes that is there's rationality, productiveness, and pride. 
And so there's a real um, focus on rationality and productiveness as kind of uh, in particular as two really key virtues that kind of stand um, that are they're worthy of stressing. And then if you think about the beneficiary, of course, I mean, she named her book, The Virtue of Selfishness. So if you're thinking about what rights are protecting, and if you're trying to get, if you're trying to conceptualize what are the most important aspects of the right to life to really draw our attention to, then I think it's, it, it's right that you'd get, you know, liberty as kind of the mirror of rationality, um, property as the, as reflecting productiveness, um, and then the pursuit of happiness is really capturing that this is for uh, like egoism. This is for protecting the individual, per, for protecting your own quest for happiness, that you don't live for the government. You don't have to live for anybody else. Um, the, then, I mean, if you look at Rand's analysis in this essay too, where does she spend the most time elaborating? Well, it's precisely on... Uh, the right to property. And then on, um, she brings, spends a lot of time on free speech, which is an aspect she would think of the, the right to liberty, the right for intellectual freedom. And the, the that, and, it, and, and that's why conceptualizing those two is so important because there's a lot, um, there's a lot that is not obvious just by saying people have the right to life. Like, I mean, if you think about what conservatives mean by the right to life, well, it's the right of things that aren't born yet, or it's the right of things that, you know, are brain dead. Like those are the only times they care about the right to life. And then the actual people living, thinking, producing, creating, screw them. So um, everything in between isn't life. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I think th this is why those are particularly important aspects of the right to life um, to highlight from the objectivist perspective. And it's, it's notable that the enlightenment thinkers and the founders realize that yeah, these are the kinds of key aspects of the right to life that need to be carved out and highlighted. Right. The conditions of life. And one of the key conditions of life is material goods are material goods. I'm a, not a ghost as Leonard Bigoff often points out. My life requires certain physical values. If I if if my rights don't include the property that I create, the whole point of rights is gone. The point is life, and they're interconnect. You can see the interconnection here between all of these. My right to happiness is my right to enjoy the product, which will again motivate me to live and be productive. They all work in harmony. If I have a right to life, I have a right to property. If I have a right to property, I have a right to enjoy it, and they work harmoniously together in terms of enacting the conditions that my life requires, the food, the clothes, the entertainment, the spiritual values, the freedom to have relationships, the freedom to artistically express myself and say what I want. All of that are the actions, all of the actions that my life requires. And that's the scope that we're talking about here. And it's got to include property rights. As Don points out, one of the things Ayn Rand focuses is freedom of speech. Freedom of speech cannot be understood outside of the context of property rights. Property rights cannot be understood outside of the bro broader conditions of individual liberty. If you're going to take a conservative approach, you're going to miss that. If you're going to take a, a leftist approach, you're going to miss that. 
and, and boy, do I want all these conservatives today who are, who are demanding regulation of social media to read this essay, especially the last half of this essay. Private citizens cannot engage in censorship. Your freedom of speech does not mean a right to have a platform or a microphone or a social media platform. Those are private property. And guess what? They can say what they want on their private property. Censorship is unique to government. Freedom is the individual freedom is the basic condition and property rights have to be taken seriously. Property rights and censorship cannot be understood separately. They are the same concept, Ayn Rand is saying. Powerful stuff. Indeed. Um, and um, I think one of the interesting parts of our discussion about um, property rights is um, this idea of um, that they are that property rights are not specifically a right to an object, but rather as the actions that you take over it. Could you say what does that mean and how to contrast that um, against other political systems? And, and I'm thinking probably on this idea of uh, the super regulatory state that says, well, well, you can keep this, but we'll tell you how it moves. By the way, that's the trains here in London, uh, how they operate. Um, but what is the contrast? Well, I mean, so we've talked about what life is, right? And it's a certain way of acting in order to sustain yourself over time. But the acting is important. Like that means acting in the world, doing things, interacting with your environment in order to like take what's out there and transform it so that it actually is a value to you. Like, I mean, take really seriously. Human beings need to live. What do we need? Well, we need things like food. We need things like shelter. We need things like transportation. We need to be able to get around and so on. There's all of these things that we need that require acting in the world and interacting with the world. And so that process has to be protected. It's not enough to survive if, well, I can think anything I want in my mind, but I can't actually take action in the world. No, human survival is production. It is, a, it is the creation of material values. And so what does it mean to protect that? Well, it means in part that you can engage in those activities Right, I can go and I can um, till the field and you know grow some carrots, or grow some potatoes, or raise a hog and things like that. So I can I can take the actions to create those values, but but if I can't consume the values I've created, then that's no good. The whole idea is that I'm transforming my environment in order to take those values and use them to support my life. And so, what is the right to property saying? Um, it's it's recognizing that the things that you produce, the values you've created, then you have rightful control over. And since all values have to be created through this process, then all property belongs to the creator. Like everything that's created belongs to the creator. The So there's no room for, oh, well, we just happen to have like some factories that make steel and some factories that make cars. So obviously they should belong to the government. No, all of that was created by certain individuals. And therefore, if, we, if the goal of government is to protect value creation 
so that people can engage in self-preservation, well, then it belongs to the people who've created it. And so there's no, um, there's the, the idea of segregating out the right to property is, oh, that's not a real right or that's an unusual right. I think it's, it's much more the opposite. It's much more of, uh, if you were going to be suspicious of anything, it's like, well, who needs rights to just sit around and think and write stuff down like that? Like that seems a little bit weird or it's not as obviously connected to survival. Why would, why would, if you're protecting survival, why, why is free speech important? In the end it is, and it's crucially important. Um, and you, and in, and in the end you can't disentangle any right from any other. And that's one of the things Ayn Rand stresses in this essay is the integration of all of our rights. But my point is this, that if you view rights as crucial for human survival, then the most clearly, obviously pro-survival rights are property rights versus the, the way in which they're regarded with suspicion, I think just shows that you're not even thinking about rights in the right way, or you're just trying to pull a fast one and you're not actually thinking about them at all. Right. Consider the relationship between effort and action and the object. If you have a misunderstanding of that, or if you've completely severed the distinction, if property rights are simply a focus on the object itself, then you could have a concept like Marx from each according to their ability to each according to their need. You see, the question, the question of moral right is a question of need, not the question of the production that went into it. That's not the function. Rights is, are not connected between the action of creating to the object. Once you've severed the, that, then you misunderstand the basis of rights. In fact, any kind of severing of that is a form of slavery, is it not? I'm saying your effort over here is one thing and the objects that it produces are another. I can take that morally. It's going to be some form of theft, some form of slavery, necessarily. When you separate out the causal prerequisite behind every material value, when you separate the two, like Marx's labor theory of value separates, in effect, the mental effort the mental effort from the object itself. Then if physical labor is all that, that, that connects it, then anything that, you know, any businessman, any inventor, anyone who claims a cut of that, he's just an exploiter. <clears throat> and that's actually a view that still has a connection between physical labor and the object. Imagine it still worse. The, the rights are to the object and the collective may just own that object, it has nothing to do with the effort that went into creating the value. There's the intimate relationship between effort and the object that my life requires cannot be severed. Otherwise, you've in effect made me a slave. Um, I was wondering if we, if using this idea of um, activity as one of the core issues um, being discussed, um, I've heard recently several libertarians trying to make a distinction uh, between something that they call um, passive or active rights. Um, and my understanding is that active rights are usually what um, are usually economic, what Rent's also talking about, the economic rights of a right to a house, a right to a job, whatever, while passive rights are rights of non-interference. But I, I don't think that that's a good way to conceptualize uh, the the way that Rand is tackling rights here. Would you agree with that? 100%. Uh, 
No, this is one of the things that drives me nuts. Like there is a distinction that you need to make between certain kind of rights that people are proposing. But what it, what you should really think of is something like individual rights versus welfare rights. Um, and and even leftists often in philosophy circles, at least have the good grace to call them welfare rights and, and not like, oh, these are positive rights or active rights or anything like that. Because part of what it does is it it's assuming oh, I've just got these negative rights, these kind of lazy ass rights that don't do anything, man. But the left, they really, they, they really have got it, man. They've got these positive rights. They've got these active rights, these things that sound really useful and exciting. And part of it, it's not a surprise that libertarians will have that because they don't, they don't attempt to share anything like the objectivist view of rights. They'll often just have it as more subjectivist forms the rights right you have the right to do whatever you feel like as long as you don't uh violate the same rights of others and that sounds like it says something but it actually has no content to it the only way that rights get content is through the positive actions that they're protecting so it's that the individual rights from the enlightenment perspective are a positive it says here's a good way of life that we're here to protect and um and so to treat them as in any way negative uh, is I think a just a horrible conceptualization, and I would never ever use that kind of terminology. Yeah, I, I fully and one hundred percent agree. It is true that, in one sense, and I mean this in a very narrow sense, uh, your rights impose upon me only the obligation to refrain from coercing you. So, in that narrow sense, you could say. Your rights uh, imply on me that I don't do something, and only that I don't do that one thing. But that's a very narrow and technical aspect, and it's sure not the moral justification. The moral justification is my right to do all those positive things that my life requires. I need to act and think and trade and produce and fall in love and have kids and so join clubs. I need to do all these positive things to live. That's the substance of rights. That's the justification for rights. You can look at social rights in some a narrow way, but by saying, look, my rights, your rights only imply that I don't coerce you, but it's only in that one narrow sense. And, it, and the rights cannot be justified or understood outside of the positive things that they're actually permitting and sanctioning. That's the justification for rights. Crucial distinction. Thank you. Um, so I, I think we can move to one, the third part of the essay, which is basically contrasting the idea of what are rights and what are not. Um, and one of the crucial distinctions that she says is that there are what she considers rights, and then she thinks that these rights have been taken away from the discussion by usually including these ideas of uh, economic rights um, and that these have inflated rights for more and uh, are so contradictory to, well, are completely contradictory to um, um, individual rights that um, in essence, they, they don't mean as such anything. Um, so why does why do these kind of concepts are taken away um, uh, the concept of individual rights? Um, 
and uh, and what what are the newest uh, attacks towards individual rights today? Probably, I was thinking something like uh, this thing that people were talking about so constantly: the idea of privilege. But I, I don't know if I maybe I asked too many too many things. But there I wanted two, to bring two them. distinct questions. Yeah, but the first one is real simple. If you have a right to medicine or education or food, if your understanding of rights is one of those positive things, then what you're claiming is a right to somebody else's labor, a right to the product of somebody else's labor. If your understanding of rights is simply a sanction for a moral sanction on your freedom of action, then it's completely incompatible. Any positive right must come at the expense, that those in that sense, positive right to a material good, must come at the expense of actual liberty from someone else. If you have a right to medicine, that implies a right to enslave doctors or someone to provide the resources to get you that. They're completely incompatible. Unless your understanding of rights is a right to freedom of action in a social context, Anything, any other conception of rights must necessarily be a violation of that. And you can see it with all these economic rights, these inflated rights that the left keeps claiming. Each one of those must necessarily come at the expense of real rights. They're simply incompatible. <clears throat> now, the notion of privilege, the second part of your question is somehow some people are more advantaged than other people and that somehow is not right and somehow a violation of their rights. But the fact is, every individual is going to be positioned different in context. Some people are going to be skilled, more skilled as athletes. Some people are going to be more skilled as singers. Some people are going to be uh, more interested in science and more skilled and trained in science. There is no such thing as an equality of uh, uh, individuals across the board in terms of their skills, talents, virtue, how much they're willing to, to put into it. So if you look at something like privilege as being white privilege or wealthy privilege or class privilege as somehow an interference, what you're saying is that that, that deterministic element somehow is unfair and is a violation of other people's freedom, which it is not, which it is not. And I guess that sort of relates to the first question, because if you don't view rights essentially as a sanction for freedom, if rights are anything other than a sanction for freedom, they will be a violation necessarily of individual freedom because they imply a right to somebody else's labor or somebody else doing something for you. If you think about what privilege is just in general, well, the contrast is precisely something uh that you don't have by right you know it's something that's extended to you that you're not deserving of that can be revoked and the the things that are often put under there are things that people in fact have by right so if you have something like wealth that you've achieved or created well that's that's a privilege or to take another example um, this is not a political one, but it's more moral. You're able to walk around a store without having the owner walking around behind you to see if you're stealing something like um, because you're white. Like that's a privilege. No, that's something that morally you're entitled to, like being judged for the color of your skin is wrong. And so 
if you look at the the whole history of rights, the it, in the eras before there's rights, the part of what the Enlightenment thinkers are d- doing is looking out and seeing there's a bunch of people with a whole bunch of privileges and a bunch of, uh, who are the kind of rightful rulers of society, and they get to tell the serfs what to do, and they get to sit around and be gentlemen while we till the fields and everything like that. And it's no that there's a quality among human beings, not a quality of wealth, not a quality of intelligence, but a quality in terms of nobody's the rightful ruler of another human beings. That indeed we need to throw out the concept of rulers. What we are are self-governing individuals who elect representatives in order to protect us. But what does protect us means to protect our rights, to to protect our our freedom to engage and live. Uh, in the activities that our happiness depends on, in other words, to live our own lives. And so what ends up happening, we have this great achievement of the enlightenment that says we're getting rid of all these privileges. We're creating a society based on rights where nobody can interfere with your rights. And then in the US, you have the progressives come along starting in the late 19th century and they say, we don't like it. We want to throw it all out. The founders are outmoded, outdated. Rights are outmoded and outdated. And you get Woodrow Wilson explicitly criticizing the founding and the concept of rights. And the problem is that Americans kind of liked rights and they kind of liked the founders. And so that didn't really work out very well. And that's precisely when you got FDR and the whole inflating of rights. He said, well, instead of trying to take people's rights away, why don't we just give them new ones? And, and that worked be, in part because people were not very clear on what rights were. And so it just seemed like, oh, yeah, we'll take new stuff. Like rights are pretty great. So if you can give us more, we're, we're all for that. And, and then that becomes the inflating and the destructive the destruction of rights that Ayn Rand is talking about in this essay. And that's why this essay is so important because the, the, the essay is not so much focused on the justification of rights, though it is, uh, it, it touches on that. It's focused on clarifying what the hell they are, because the reason they were overthrown was not primarily for lack of justification. It was for this lack of clarity and once we know what rights are, and then we have a sense that there's something desirable to protect, then we can actually protect them. Then we can safeguard them. And I mean, I think that's what we've been exploring here is just what is this concept that the founding fathers managed to enshrine in the government? And then how do we protect that? Yeah. That's great. <laughs> um, so we have a couple of minutes left. Um, do you have any departing words um, what is the, the overall value of this? I mean, you already discussed about this. Uh, Donald, well, but- I mean, I'll just say one thing that I think is important. It's, and I think this has come up several times, but I really want to underline it is don't think that you can equate Ayn Rand's analysis of rights with other thinkers. And even when she's drawing on people like the enlightenment thinkers, um, really try to get the, I I think that she's clarifying what's in them, but the clarifications are really important that she's really bringing a lot new and, and a fresh perspective on rights. And certainly you can't equate her with kind of libertarian or conservative thinkers who will talk about rights and natural rights and things um, that she's a really different way of thinking uh, about them. And so you, you, you might end up disagreeing with it, but my point is don't conflate them. Even if you think there's a superior account, 
get that she's saying something really different, really new. And I think in the end, it's the right way to think about rights. Yeah, you can see the development of an idea and effect that Ayn Rand was building on, you know, John Locke's harm principle. You've got the freedom, the right to freedom, as long as it doesn't hurt someone else. Well, that's kind of vague. And you've even got Thomas Jefferson articulating it in one of his inaugural addresses. People have, individuals have a right to do anything so long as it doesn't injure someone else. Well, that's kind of vague too. And you get to like John Stuart Mill and his vague, vague harm principle when he was sort of a defender of liberty early, earlier on in his career. None of them really understood the specific factual line that needs to be drawn here because none of them understood that it was related to man's basic tool of cognition and survival. Ayn Rand drew the line objectively, clearly. It is a matter of coercion and ultimately of physical force. The only way rights can basically be violated is through some form of initiating physical force and rendering human relationships coercive as opposed to voluntary. By doing that, she created a revolution that clarified rights in the entire history of classical liberalism, in my view, with great clarity, but only because she understood the basis in reality, the reason why we need rights. And uh, the other important thing to understand and why her idea is even different, as Don says, concept radically different, even from the way previous classical liberals justified liberty. It was her approach to concepts. It's her understanding of rights as a concept and her understanding of values objectively. So it's her objective approach to concepts and values that distinguishes her whole approach uh, uh, to rights from every other classical liberal thinker out there. But in a specific way, she in effect drew the correct objective factual line that they had all been in effect sort of groping in the dark for giving us really for the first time a clear objective basis on which now to form an objective philosophy of law. Great. Thank you very much. Um, so in the name of the Ayn Center UK, I thank you uh, for this talk. Um, in, so for people listening live, in 30 minutes uh, on Radio Ragnar, there will be the premiere uh, of flirting with reason, uh, featuring Nikos and Maria. Uh, the link is live in uh, in live chat. And next week we'll be discussing philosophy and sense of life. If you enjoy this discussion, please consider uh, becoming a member. Uh, memberships be, uh, start in ten pounds, so it's pretty affordable. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you.